welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So Jordan, the first thing that I wanted to ask you is just kind of a big question, and I realize I didn't send it ahead of time, so just whack at the softball as you will, but, but what does mental health mean to you? You know, what's so funny is as you asked that question, I just got a message <laughs> on Messenger from Tucker Max and he and I and a bunch of other people and you were in the room too, uh, Sherry, remember that conversation we had at MMT? For those that are listening that don't know what MMT is, it's a big entrepreneurial organization around our mental health. And there was like 20 of us in this small room having this dialogue. And why I laugh about getting that message at this at this moment right here is I think Tucker embodied how someone can have such a wildly different take on mental health versus someone else sitting right next to them. So I, I mean, I, I honestly think there's no one answer. What it means to me personally is it's all about being extremely aware of almost of the the, the traps that we have in our minds. I think one of my biggest struggles and, and one of the biggest struggles of many of the people that I'm either friends with or that we work with or whatever is that they don't have the emotional awareness to be able to identify and lean in and understand their emotional triggers, their past pain, the things that keep them up at night in a way that's very vivid. And I think for me, developing mental wellness is about going pretty deep into your own head and being able to start to identify and label those things. Because as soon as you can do that, the sooner you can see that you're not alone, the sooner you'll be more encouraged to speak openly about this stuff. And that's when I suppose, real mental wellness begins. I appreciate your reference to, to Tucker. He, he's been a guest on this show and someone who we've talked about MDMA-supported psychotherapy as you know the strategy to really un, unlock, potentially, some of the traps in your mind that you think of. So as you, as you think about what it means to you, what are some of the traps that you have wrestled with or that you you know, have had the process personally of identifying within yourself and then working through with more awareness and emotional intelligence? That's a great question. So first things first, I, I, I've actually done my own fair share of MDMA therapy and uh, can attest to that being one way to open up the, the trap door, so to speak, and jumping in and seeing what's on the other side. And what I learned from that and seeing a, a great therapist for a number of years and, and doing, just doing a lot of work on myself more generally from some of my more difficult times is that in me, there is very much this wounded kid. I grew up in a small rural community. My parents didn't have a lot of money. There was a lot of stress around home because of that. And at school, I got the crap kicked out of me like every day for a decade. And all those things together meant that I felt very unsafe as a kid, not at, not at home in that way, but just like unsafe to be myself, unsafe to, to speak up, unsafe to even walk down the hallway at school. And my, my mind was just in this aroused state of fight or flight. Over time, what that meant is I became really amazing at putting on a mask 
I have definitely played the chameleon card uh, far more times than I could possibly even count or imagine throughout, uh, you know, whether it was school or working life or social life. And I think all this is to say is within me, those things, even though I can identify them, I can talk about them, I can sit down and tell someone a ton of stories about it and relate to, you know, someone that's in an audience or someone that I'm meeting with. But those are things that are still very real to me. Those are things I still hold on to a lot. And I've done a lot of work on it, but I, and I've just kind of gotten to the point where I think in terms of these traps, I don't think they ever really become covered over. I don't think they're ever not a trap anymore. I think it's just we develop the awareness of how we can, how we can anticipate something coming up and then where we channel that emotional response. And then once we are in, for example, a darker place, say something is very challenging to us, how can we make sense of that and and put ourselves first so that we can get out of it? I really uh, appreciate your framing of that because I, I talk with a lot of folks, especially entrepreneur, founder, high-performing kinds of folks. And as we all know, there's this deep satisfaction in checking something off the to-do list. You and I were talking about this before we hit record. And I feel like a lot of the folks that I work with will come to me with a to-do list of need to work out this issue that I had with my mom when I was a kid, need to talk about why I fight with my co-founder all the time, need to talk about why my middle child is driving me nuts. And they have kind of a to-do list of things that they expect to be resolved. But the way that you framed it, which I think is much more realistic and in keeping with my experience is the sense in which it's more about learning the the kind of inner landscape and the places where there are potholes or trapdoors or what you know whatever analogy we want to use and not so much that we get to check it off the to-do list as we get to anticipate was the word that you used learn about know how to walk around when we need to or know how to sit with when we need to these parts of us that are more reactive or more vulnerable to triggers or, or just in more pain. Absolutely. No, I, I, I love that. And I, I think this has been one of the things that I've taken away from our business as well, where, um, so we run a, a big mental health company in Canada and um, we offer therapy and education. And so when someone reaches out for therapy, they'll often say, Hey, I really need to talk to someone because of reason X, Y, or Z. And it's often very literal. It's, it's something that they just like can clearly articulate and put their, their hands around. Like, just like what you said, like I, I need to talk to someone because I'm upset because of a breakup with my husband. Right? Like, okay, well, we can get our hands around that. And it's important to note that I am not a therapist. So I'm not in the room. I do coaching and I run the business, but I'm not a therapist. But what ends up coming out during these sessions, oftentimes what we've seen sort of tangentially and through the trends is like, you know, you think you're coming in from one thing, but it's really something totally different or something that's distantly related, but much deeper ingrained. And like the, the experience of going through like a very intense therapy regimen is all about getting down to that granular level of detail. And it kind of drives me nuts when we talk about mental health in terms of something that's much more binary, right? Like either I'm feeling good or I'm not. Either I'm happy or I'm sad. Either I'm depressed or I feel on top of the world. Like, And I think that we're getting to a point of being able to talk about these things in a way that I, I think is two things. One, uh, more normal, of course, to understand that we all are human beings. We all struggle. We all have our ups and downs. But secondly, is that our understanding of mental health is like very, very 2D right now. Whereas in reality, there's so much more depth, there's so much more color, there's so much more complexity. And I think as a culture, we can label these things in, in a more 
strategic, not strategic, uh, I suppose nuanced way that we're going to be able to really start to articulate what we need from each other in a much clearer way. We're going to be able to articulate what's going on with ourselves. And I mean, Sherry, you know, from, from being a mother, like, I mean, the next generation in this regard gives me a ton of hope because I meet kids all the time that are like 10 and are articulate, articulating what's on their emotional palate so bloody well that it took me like, you know, like 25 years, a lot of MDMA and like a ton of therapy to get to. I mean, it, it's really amazing. And I'm seeing that appear more and more in the next generation. And I kind of feel like our generation is on the flip side, just kind of trying to catch up. And in, in some ways, give us a little bit of credit, Jordan. It's because of, of people like you and business like yours and work like mine that our, the generation following us is doing mindfulness-based yoga in elementary school and that they're really integrating social and emotional skills into the classroom. That's because our generation is like screaming for it. That's fair. All right. All right. We're passing it on. They're jumping on the bandwagon. All right. Fine. But <laughs> well, hopefully the adults are helping, right? Yeah, totally. But I, and, and this is, I think I, I should, you know, to this point, I should give a lot of credit to the parents as well. I mean, like, so one of the interesting things about a lot of the public speaking work that we did historically is like, we typically worked with kids and youth and teens. And now the quickest growing area and the biggest area of interest for our programs is among adults, specifically like leaders, entrepreneurs, parents. And what's really cool about the parent sessions and like the teacher sessions as well are amazing is you have these people that have not been open about this stuff for like decades that are now dipping a toe in the water and seeing how freeing it can be. And it's, there's just something really beautiful about that. Whereas kids today, many kids, I should say, like, they're like, oh yeah, whatever. You're telling your friends that you're anxious, whatever, mom, that's, that's, that's nothing. What do you want to star? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, congratulations, mom. But, and I, I think to your point, I mean, lots of credit is due certainly to a lot of the trends that are going on about how culturally open we are. But I, I, I still can't help but feeling like we're very much still in an infancy part of being able to talk openly about all this stuff and, and describe it. And so that makes me really excited for what's to come next. Well, given what's to come next, let's, let's talk a little bit about your business, Shift Collaborative. Well, first of all, I'm just curious, like when's the moment that you thought it was a good idea to start a mental health business? And then and tell me more about what, what it is and what you all do. I, I saw a market opportunity. No, I, I <laughs> um, yes and no. <laughs> well, not, no, not really. I mean, so I say that totally kidding, but basically like until five years ago, I was a, I was a real estate developer and consultant. And um, I ended up in this enormously bizarre situation where I was a total workaholic jerk that pushed everyone away. I mean, I should just speak in first person. It'll be easier. I, I pushed everyone away from me. And then I ended up in the middle of this very bizarre viral internet story that uh, was a total accident, but it ended up just blowing up. And it's a very long, complicated story. Suffice to say, it got the attention of, of a lot of the world's media for about six months. And what ended up happening during that is I, I very much lost control of that narrative and the story arc of all of it. And I began to see in a very visceral way, again, being this like wounded kid in an adult's body, how easy it was, even as an adult, to be able to like smile on the world stage and pretend like you're totally fine when really inside your mind, you're like totally friggin' falling apart. 
that mask that you're wearing. Yeah, it was like, it wasn't even just one mask. It was layers of masks. I mean, I was like, I was mummified in my own body. Like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and it had been so deeply seated for so long that what really scared me the most in like that moment is like the, the most amount of attention or publicity or traction or whatever you want to call it for anything I'd ever done in my life was premised on a version of myself or a story of myself that I friggin' hated and I detest and I found a lot of shame in. And that's a really scary thing, right? Because either you sort of say, yeah, I'll go with this. And you go farther from your true north and you end up trading off a lot of your own moral boundaries. Or on the flip side, you turn it all away and then you wonder what if. And I, I, walking that line for me was very difficult because ha having the upbringing I did, I mean, any sort of like digital validation, especially at the scale that, that I'm talking about here. I mean, like there was like over 4 billion media impressions of this story. Like it was massive. And anything at that level, I mean, it just feels like this injection of adrenaline until you realize how messed up it is that it feels so good. And until you start asking yourself more difficult questions about what's actually going on underneath there. And then as I fell apart and as I started to go inwards and, and be really scared of what I saw, anything that was positive coming from that media attention, like at that point in time, like we had built, like we were working on a TV show. We had a charity that all stemmed from this viral internet story um, and a book deal. And that's how I started speaking too, is because I was then I had like agents galore out of nowhere, even though I had no idea what to say or do. And as I had all this momentum professionally, I just totally fell apart personally. And so that was also a major point of shame. And it just led to me basically pulling away from everything and everyone for about a year. And I, I didn't really call people back. I didn't really see anyone. I was living in Cincinnati of all places at a, in a random apartment. Like anything I touched was, was falling apart. What were you doing during that time? Like, were you kind of like couching full time, sitting on the couch or? Okay. So this, this viral story was all about like me having this like silly uh, plane ticket that I wanted to give away to someone with the same name as my ex, because I had made this amazing trip for us while we were still together. But then when we split up, she didn't know about the trip. But when she split up, I had like organized the trip of a lifetime. And I, I was dared by a friend to give away the ticket because her name was kind of generic. I wasn't going to go on the trip, but I just wanted to pay it forward, do something nice out of, you know, my own heartbroken state. Because again, it was all paid for. What do I care? And then it ended up like just blowing up massively. So all of a sudden out of that, we had like a travel TV show. The movie rights were acquired. We had a travel book. William Morris Endeavor signed me on a 363 three-year deal. And I had no idea how to navigate any of this. Shit. So what I was doing at that point is we were trying to figure out this travel charity thing, which was a really cool concept. And we raised venture capital. So I was in Cincinnati with the group that invested in us building this travel app. That's kind of like what is now Airbnb experiences. Uh, it was kind of before its time. And having a founding team that was in, that was invested in, that was part of a, a big accelerator, fall apart at the end of all that. Like, because we were kind of charged with building this, this app and with the charity. And all of it fell apart too, just as I did. And so when, when I say I pulled back, it was at the tail end of that. And then I ended up just like, just after that blew up in my face, I was just horrified of how I was known, the person I had become, what I saw underneath. I thought I was worthless. I thought I'd never be good for anyone or anything. I mean, I thought life was over, honestly, because I just didn't see a version of it where I didn't feel this immense shame. Not to mention the biggest piece of shame that I felt and still feel 
was the fact that my ex's name obviously was out there. And she was, and still is an amazing, awesome person that taught me so much about being a good person. It, it boggles my mind. So I felt an enormous amount of shame about being exploitive of someone that was great. And so, so there was a lot of shame. I'm sure a lot of people listening to can relate to the complete implosion that goes along with like a venture failing, you know, a lot of people who have attempted to start businesses and it's despite your best effort and, you know, all of the hustle, it just hasn't worked. And of course, that's so deeply intertwined with our identities. And, and often there are lots of people who are collateral damage, your, your ex in this case. And yeah, but it could just as easily be like my family or my wife or my kids or my, you know, my parents or whatever. And that's the thing. That's the reason why I do tell the story is exactly that. I mean, like, one of the things that I think so many of us are waiting around for is like our opportunity. Like that moment that like someone says, yeah, that's a great business idea. Or yes, we want you to be the keynote speaker at this conference. Or yes, here's a book deal, right? Like we're all waiting for that invitation to step up. And then what happens if you f*** that up, right? Like what happens? Like it, what, where does your mind go? Immediately, you're going to, <laughs> you're going to grieve, right? You're going to grieve what could have been. And then you combine that with a lot of shame around who you are and how you show up. And it's a recipe for disaster. And I mean, when I was stuck in that period of time, it was, it was a year of hell. And I was pretty sure I was going to take my own life because, as I said, I didn't see a version out of this. And you know how to share it. When someone's feeling suicidal, like your periphery vision is, is, goes from being quite wide to being super narrow. And all of a sudden, you can, see the, you can just see the failure of a person that you are. And this is where this is where I get back to your question of why did I why did we start this business? It was because I actually started to see things differently because of two events. So the first event was I was invited in a weird roundabout way to give a TED talk on like the behind the scenes thing of this viral story and like really rip the mask off of it in a very, very visceral way. And it wasn't just like any TED talk, it was it's like the second largest TED event in the world, TED Toronto, like it's twelve hundred people in my hometown. Like people, like getting tickets is like really hard. Like it's a big thing. And it's a big deal. Yeah. And so to, to be selected, not just to get on stage, that was one thing, but more so to be selected and then having the coaching and mentorship to develop a talk. It was like my coach, James Powell, and a couple other people behind the scenes changed fundamentally how I saw myself in this moment because they challenged me like through these very intensive weekly coaching calls to rewrite this chapter of my life. And that was very therapeutic. And I was seeing a therapist as well at the same time. So that happened. And then much to my own surprise, when I, for the first time in my life, just put it all out there and said, hey, everything I projected in my life has been a big fat lie and here's why and do it on stage at a TED event. Then all of a sudden, I, I, I discovered that there was a different kind of like more natural human to human validation. And that maybe these stories of struggle, if we can articulate it in a way that is not bullshit, but is very honest and real, maybe, maybe just maybe that can do something for someone else. Maybe it can help someone see that they're not the only one struggling with because I, all of this stuff, it's not just about my experience or your experience or whatever. Like all of this stuff is just about universal experiences, like things that every living person understands. Like we all understand what it is to be hopeless. We all understand heartbreak. We all understand what it is to be down at. We all understand shame. We all understand embarrassment. We all understand what it is to feel love and joy and euphoria Right. And so, if we, as I started to see, is if we weave our narrative into that, then all of a sudden it's not just about me talking about a viral trip gone wrong. Right. 
it's actually talking about like the hope of having an opportunity to rewrite and reorient heartbreak and then have it blow up in your face and then a bunch of other stuff. And then right after that TED event, I ended up meeting Megan, who's my partner now in, in life and in business. And Megan's a therapist. And not only is she a therapist, she's a kick-ass therapist that really works with a lot. She focuses basically on super ambitious people. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, totally, right? Uh, you guys would totally hit it off. And like, and when I met Meg, like, it was so funny because it was like one of the first dates, I think actually the first date I had gone out on since all this stuff. And it was like a year and a half later at this point. And we met on Tinder, which is even funnier. And we, we sit down at Starbucks and she's like, wait, you seem familiar. And I was like, you know, I've had kind of a weird go lately. <laughs> and she's like, she's like thinking in her head, like, oh my God, like this guy, like, you know, being a therapist, you hear lots of unbelievable things. Like this guy has like X, Y, and Z going on, or like, you know, has some sort of unheard of fetish. Like, and, and I explained the trip around the world story. And she's like, oh, you're that guy? Yeah, whatever. She's like, that is not going to phase me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a very long story of our relationship. The short is we ended up dating for a bit and then broke up and then didn't talk for a while, then started a podcast together to rekindle our friendship, then became best friends and business partners. But along that journey, along that journey, what something really amazing happened is that in talking with Megan and seeing into her world, and her world also as a therapist that totally struggles with this stuff too, it then like it challenged another thing that I think was a very limiting factor to ever get into this industry, which is the idea that someone, everyone but me has it all figured out, right? Like, cause I'd always looked at therapists or like psychologists or thought leaders or whatever, authors or speakers and be like, oh my God, like they know it all. They don't. Like everyone knows something, Right. But, you know, like, I mean, like most people that we talk to, I mean, they, they figured out a sliver of the puzzle, right? And what Megan was amazing at doing was taking, not to use the same analogy over and over again, but she was able to take the mask off of the mental health industry. And because I was an outsider and she was an insider, we could have these amazing dialogues about that. And it just, we started to imagine what if a therapy practice could look differently? What if how we talked about mental health didn't actually even use the words mental health? What if we could then build like a system of like speaking and events and training and all this stuff that would very much challenge these norms of how we've operated? And with the litmus test we've always used is like, if it resonates for both of us, it should resonate for our target people who are exactly like us. And so that's how we started. And so to answer your question in a very succinct way, I never in a, a million years would have seen myself in this space, ever. And I certainly would have never ended up in this space had I not seen the other side of this. But what does make me extremely proud to be in this space now is like that I feel like we're doing really good work. I feel like even though, like selfishly, even though I'm not a therapist, I don't have to pretend to be one. I was always kind of scared of that, right? Like oh, I have to pretend I went to school for this shit. And I definitely did it early on when I was speaking and stuff. But now I just, I found so much more power in just being like, hey, I'm just like an every, I'm like your every man. I'm like, I got sort of a dad bod, you know, like I, you know, I'm probably going to lose my hair soon. I'm like, I'm like a very, I'm five nine. I'm a very average guy. And if I can use that normalcy to try to build a bridge to other people like me, then that is good. And what I've learned is that I don't need to be a therapist to do that because I can invite people into the conversations, listen to their stories, and then know when to escalate or when to kick it over to our therapy team or when to, when to know what my boundaries are and instead like focus on that. Because as you know, I'm sure like 1% of people ever reach out for therapy and mental health support. And so if we can do anything to widen that audience, why wouldn't we? 
And some of the things that you all are doing that, you know, is really interesting to me and probably some of my audience is thinking about how to bring more mental wellness to the workplace. Say a little bit about what you're doing there. So I, I think the big thing for us, whether we were working in schools or, or companies or, or whatever, is to normalize. And uh, it, so we we ended up developing this very bizarre way of engaging people, which was in, in all of our uh, keynotes and in all of our workshops, we use anonymous texting software where anyone can share anything in the room at that point in time, and it comes up anonymously on the screen within a couple seconds. And there's no ability for it to be traced back, nothing like that. So it just appears, it appears as a bunch of statements. And when you invite people to engage in a medium where they are more comfortable, when you prime them with the right questions, and where you invite them to share, I think, in a way that is very low risk, that kind of normalization of seeing like 100 submissions on a screen in front of you, as you're sitting next to your colleagues, listening to this guy tell stories to sort of get you amped up, and then seeing that, holy I believe that I was alone for every day of my, you know, my career at company XYZ, because I've been carrying around this anxiety and this fear of failure and this pain from my home life or my childhood or whatever. And holy crap, I'm not alone. Like that kind of boggling empirical proof is what we focus on. The like in the moment experience of essentially sort of crowdsourcing normalization. Exactly. Because once we do that in a way that is like, you can't argue with it because it's there, it's empirical, it's real data, right? And so once we find we get people to that point and not just around like one thing, but like a lot of different topics, then we jump off with training, with resource development, with, you know, doing consulting to figure out new policies that HR people should follow in the workplace, like all sorts of crap. And what's amazing about that is like, instead of us going in and just being like, we're going to teach you some stuff, here's some tools that you should use, Mr. Manager. It's more about building a like a very deep visceral connection between people to make them believe that this is, that A, they're not alone and B, that this stuff matters. And we find that when we establish that baseline in any organization, the outcomes are incredible because otherwise we're just teaching people stuff for the sake of teaching people stuff. And I think going to, you know, what we were saying earlier about like, what does mental health really mean right now? And as we get towards a point in time where there's much more granular and nuanced detail of it, we have to not just focus on teaching people like strategies to manage your anxiety and five easy steps or whatever, but we actually have to teach people how to identify, how to talk about this stuff, how to get comfortable in their own bodies with this stuff. And that can happen at school. It can happen at work. And the idea that we can play a small part of that is, is really humbling to us. So we have that side of the business. Uh, we run a massive student assistance program. So it's like an EAP for college students, biggest one in Canada. We use all the same principles in how we've designed care. And then we have a therapy team of almost, we're just over 50 therapists now. So there's three areas of the business, but it all comes back to this, like, this same belief that we are all in this together. We all have the power to speak up and share our story. And that we've made it this far. We're doing pretty good. Like we really, I think... From a very general perspective, one of the people, one of the things that people feel when they first start working with us, whether it's in a workshop or like the therapy room, is like they see that we believe in them, and that puts the idea of the mental health industry or seeing a therapist or going to a mental health seminar or whatever, it, it tips it on its head because we all go into those things thinking that this person sitting across from me, this therapist, is going to tell me everything that's wrong with me. But what if they pointed out everything? That's like, I'm doing well and, and help me believe in me so that I can tackle some of this stuff. 
Like we've taken a very optimistic view on where we're at right now. And I think that's been a bit of our secret sauce. Yeah, that positive psychology or strength-based analysis where you're looking for the powers that are already there, the wellness that's already there and helping people unlock that. Yeah, the connections that already can be there, right? Like, I mean, that that to me, seeing people stumble into that is 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 extremely powerful and really beautiful. And one of the most stunning things that we do is, you know, when we have these events where it's not just about anonymous texting, but also it's, it's very similar to what Philip McKernan does with one last talk of like having people step up and share their truth, share something that for years they wish they were courageous enough to to explain to their colleagues in front of like 200 of them at once and being able to witness that bravery and then support that person and that community, that company, whatever afterwards, it's just humbling. I was going to say, like, do you ever see that go terribly wrong? Like, do people ever share something that others really aren't so well set up to absorb? I mean, uh, for being realistic, I mean, we've done hundreds of those events and I'm sure there has been things that have been shared that are very challenging to others. In terms of the person sharing, we've never had anyone share anything where we've been like, ooh, that wasn't good. Like we've gotten pretty good at reading body language, at trying to get an understanding of why someone may want to come up and also just uh, facilitating if things are going a little off the rails. So that takes care of that. In terms of the audience, honestly, like one of the things that we've learned is like, we, you can't do this on like a cold audience, right? Or, or and you can't ask people to come up cold either. You've got to get them to this kumbaya sense of, you know, we're here in this moment together. And when you create that, even if it's a very thin layer of psychological safety or trust with one another, whatever you want to call it, like that, that feeling of connection with your peers. When we get to a little bit of that, we find that typically whatever is shared is received by the others on a very human level. Now, is that triggering to some people at some times? Probably, but we're also not using it to, to pull out really hard things all the time. Like, I, I think in a lot of people's minds, they're like, especially like schools often think like, well, what if, what if everyone gets up and one after another say that they're suicidal? That's never happened. I mean, because we're not asking those questions either, right? And, and that's also just not, that's not what the program is. Like, because even that, like saying I feel suicidal, that is an outcome of something else that is much deeper, right? And so our role is to ask the deeper thing. And that, again, goes back to that universal human experience of like, I could say anything or they could say anything. And if we're thinking about it in the right way, we connect on a visceral, very, very deep human level. And so it's not as scary to hear. And we just identify with, we feel it. And I kind of struggle with how to explain it. It's, it's a very unusual thing to be in the room at these events. But like one thing I think Megan and I have just gotten very good at in our work, whether by design or not, is always reaching down a little bit further than what you would kind of have otherwise. Like, and making sure that we're touching these things that like, we want to make sure that at the end of the day, we're touching something that it gives people a sense of like a sense of curiosity about why that has been left unsaid for so long. And I feel like if we can get to that point with even just one or two people in an audience or one or two people coming up on stage, that the event, the speech, the course, whatever we're doing is enormously beneficial. So all this is to say, like I, I mean, I, I feel so friggin' privileged to do this work. I always say every day is the is the most special day of my life. That any day that I'm doing this facilitating or speaking, because like how rare is it in this world to go in front of a group of strangers and build these opportunities for for such incredible vulnerability and connection and openness that may not exist otherwise. It's interesting to think kind of at that meta level that you're now leading a team. You and Meg are leading a team of almost 60 people. And 
how are the things that you teach in other businesses, how does that shape the way that you run your business? Damn it. Um, how, how are you putting it into practice? Which, you know, we all struggle with, so. Yeah, no, of course we do, right? And this, I, I've actually noticed this happening a little bit more lately because we've kind of been like, so the first couple of years, we were just kind of like normal growth and now we're kind of at hyper growth. And one of the things that I've found happen is that these challenges are coming up more and more in our workplace. And we have a, so we, part of our team is in Toronto, like about half and then half are remote. So some people we rarely see, right? If ever. And one of the very challenging things with that is like building this sense of connection, psychological safety, openness, encouraging these, these kinds of moments together for a team that is both in person and not. And we stumble through a lot of that. And especially when I may be pulled away to go and do some speaking outside of our organization or Megan may be. That is also hugely disruptive to the continuity around uh, this emotional investment that's required. So, you know, fortunately, we've, we were pretty quick to flag that. And we've built in a management team that works with us that is much more of the steady hand around these topics. That is managing the check-ins. That is really leaning into each other. That is creating space and openness for this vulnerability. And we, what we figured out is the best thing that Megan and I can do is be very open about how things are going and very open about our, our decisions. I mean, we kind of, we use a lot of the Ray Dilo principles of, of, you know, being just radically honest because it's so bloody important. Because I think that's one of the things that does happen in an organization. I just, I see this from friends of mine that are, that are entrepreneurs. We never want to be the founders where like everything is going to hell, but we're off on some fancy stage somewhere, right? Like, and it's so easy to have that duality and just sort of play into it. And especially in this kind of business where it could be very easy for us to to bullshit people and not practice it ourselves. And I think we just try to hold ourselves accountable to that the best we can and just talk really openly about our failures with our team. And certainly one of the challenges of any remote team or partially remote team as yours is, is the sense of isolation for those who are remote, which is can be super exacerbated by the kind of work that clinicians do, which is emotionally heavy. You have people who are scattered and then people who are really doing emotional heavy lifting in their jobs. Yeah, it's a recipe for burnout. I mean, we've seen it a bunch of times. And one of the things that interestingly, like we started to do is, so <laughs> we kind of, we, we're fairly startup-y as a company in terms of how we operate. And even just like little things of like making sure that we have, and this is going to sound so simple to anyone not in the healthcare space, but um, even simple things like getting all the therapists to use Slack like really well and making sure that we have like routines and like fun things and opportunities to share and dialogues in a medium where people can contribute asynchronously has been so valuable because it breaks down that a little bit. We also have a massive um, community of a thousand, about a thousand, a little bit over a thousand other private practice therapists within Canada. Some of so some of them are work with us, many don't. And it's this big community on Facebook. And then there's all sorts of like regional meetups and all sorts of stuff that happens because we realized if we were going to uh, expand nationally, A, we eventually need to recruit nationally, but B, we'd also want to develop hubs of activity where we can start to set forth a pretense. And so that's also given people a sense of community uh, that they may not have had otherwise as a private practice clinician. And so creating that, those opportunities is hugely valuable. We still have a lot to do in terms of how we deliver like training, for example, like learning and develop. We're at that point right now where learning and development internally is super, super important and how we manage that both with a remote and in-person team in a meaningful way. 
I mean, a lot of these challenges are becoming very real. And the best thing I can say is like, try to learn from those that have done this stuff before you. But inside of that, just try to never, I think I've gone through the the classic entrepreneurial founder leader thing of feeling like I need to send out the press release version of how the business is doing. But rather, I try to give myself way more time to be human with our people and just explain things in, in very real and honest terms. And whether that's someone that's sitting next to me all day or someone that's on the other side of the country, I think it's just super, super important. And Meg's amazing at that too. Honestly, I, I guess it gives me hope that we'll be able to get through this growth period while managing some of the very real emotional challenges that our people are facing. Well, last question, and I've, I'm so grateful for your for your time and energy. But you know, we, we were talking offline a little bit beforehand about the some of the craziness of being someone who is leading teams and is on the road a lot and is just working to create something that you really believe in and love and find super valuable. But of course, that takes a lot of output from you. So what are your go-to strategies for kind of refilling your tank? You know, I wish I had a really eloquent answer for something like this. I really do. But I haven't figured it out yet. I'm going to be really honest. Like, I mean... I mean, it could be like Game of Thrones and Popcorn. Oh, I mean, well, <laughs> if we're talking about that, I mean... Okay, so so like my my biggest outlet of all and as a canadian this is especially funny is us politics like i am such a politico it is nothing that's an outlet it's, for it's, you oh yeah, my goodness it's, it's like my favorite full contact sport i am like all in i'm watching the game every night on like msnbc cnn baby like i am everywhere in all seriousness though like it is about having like something where I feel a bizarre sense of emotional investment. And it's just like, it's something that is like totally outside of my day-to-day life in terms of my work and my personal life. You know, so having that is really, really important. Meg has like, (laughs) Meg in a similar vein, she finds like the most bizarre shows that are no longer available on TV because they're so bad. There's all sorts of old episodes on YouTube and stuff you can dig up like, like extreme, what was she showing me the other day? It was mind-bogglingly bizarre. Always oh, like extreme cheapskates or something like that. It was a show about people that are like wildly cheap. And there's like, like the anti-Kardashians. Yeah. And it's like nuts. Like like couples that live together and like have lived together for years and like share like a toothbrush. Like it's like because they want to save the 88 cents. Like it's that kind of being cheap. And so you're watching this the whole time, being like, Oh my God, she's like, she, her mom booked her a wedding in like a high school gymnasium wearing a dress that she got for $20. Like, oh my, like it's just that kind of stuff that's just totally outside of our everyday. Um, so honestly, that, that, <laughs> like, that kind of stuff Love that it. just makes us, it reminds us, I think, of the absurdity in the world is actually really important because you know how this industry is. It, it's, it's very draining. We're dealing with very serious, very difficult, challenging things all day. And what I would say outside of that too is like, I, I really do try to figure out how I can have something in my day, even during my work day, that will like bring me an obnoxious amount of joy. And like, and I don't mean from watching US politics or bad TV shows, but like it can take it can be a bunch of things. Like I listen to like a lot of like really hilarious 90 grunge rock and like putting on an old like Bush X album to me is like this, like it's like this this throwback to a simpler time all the way through to sometimes in the background while we're working, I'll put on like some Seinfeld stand-up. Like it's it's those kinds of things that try to like tackle the divide between the the intensity of what we do and also just some joy. So yeah, so I think it's I think it's just about figuring out piece by piece. If I do crack the code though, I will let you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
and please write a book about it and, you know, make a lot of money. And I mean, well, okay. So here's, here's the thing. Like I've read like all the Miracle Morning books since uh, not all, but I've read a couple of different versions of them. And I mean, like, there's a lot to be said about your morning routine and about how you structure your day and whatnot. But like, one of the things I struggle with, and I'll leave you with this, when thinking about how I take care of myself and how are people take care of themselves, like, I really feel like there is so much more wisdom within each of them and somewhere maybe even deep within inside myself about what we really need. And so every day, like all my, all I'm trying to do, at least with our team is like find a little bit more of what makes everyone come out and like be fully alive and just feel like what they do matters, that they can laugh, that they can be them full selves here. And I feel like if I can do that for others, it's easier for me to do that for myself. And all of a sudden, the questions about refilling our tanks, it becomes a little lessened because we find some levity day to day. You're not as empty. Exactly. Exactly. Internally, that is one of the most important missions we can have. And I would also say this, like the thing that underlines all of our work is about getting people to be the exact same person that they believe and they feel comfortable being in the therapy room throughout their entire day at their office, right? Like that kind of very raw, honesty, emotional, potentially empowered, healthy, like fearful, joyous, whatever it is, like whatever we feel like we don't have to hide from anymore. We want people to be that all day, every day. And I think it starts with us. Well put, my friend, well put. (laughs) So if people want to follow you and see what you're doing, what you're working on, what's the best place for folks to keep track of all things Jordan and Shift Collab? The best way, honestly, is is shiftcollab.com. That's that's our therapy practice. And then shiftpeople.ca, Canadian domain, you gotta love it, is where we do all of our organizational work as well. You can just find me at Jordan Exani. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-A-X-A-N-I on every network. So just uh, you know, follow along. And if there's anything that makes you interested that we set, shared here, we try to be a pretty open book about how we operate. So don't feel shy to to reach out. And I'm happy to share any neat tricks that we found to um, to bring out uh, a little bit more in our people or things that we share with clients, whatever. I'm here to help. So thank you for having me. I, I really, really appreciate it, Jerry. I, this has been fun. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jordan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.